Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFist podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 271, and today's guest is Vishal Sunak, CEO and founder of LinkSquares. Most companies in the tech industry that scale aggressively and create a category-leading company usually raise a significant amount of venture capital funding. In the case of LinkSquares, the company's raised over $161 million in funding, which includes a $100 million Series C round of funding that was announced back in April. The funding has come along at a very steady clip for LinkSquares, with its Series B round announced in 2021 and its Series A round announced in 2020. Needless to say, LinkSquares is in hypergrowth mode and this capital is helping the company take advantage of its product market fit. But Vishal and I start off the conversation with a deep dive into how he's been able to raise capital each year while balancing his responsibilities as a CEO with hundreds of other tasks that need to be tackled. LinkSquares, if you're not familiar with the company, is behind the AI-powered contract management platform for legal teams aiming to move their business forward faster. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of other great topics, like Vishal's background growing up, including the start of his professional career, and how the Startup Institute helped pave his way into the world of startups, his experience at Backupify, and various roles that he played at the company, the full story of LinkSquares, and how they identified this opportunity to disrupt an industry and take on the incumbents, all the details on the LinkSquares platform, and how they are leveraging AI, plus the company's growth plans ahead, his biggest lessons learned as a CEO of a hypergrowth company, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, the Venture Fizz Weekly Digest email is the must-subscribe email to keep you connected to the tech scene. You'll receive lots of information on companies, advice for your career, and other fun tidbits. Sign up at venturefizz.com register. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Vishal. Vishal, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Keith, how are you? Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm excited to talk to you because we've had a couple conversations in the past about Link Squares and uh, it was part of our CXO briefing series. So we kind of, you know, create these 10 minute segments about a company, but I was like, we need to do the full podcast. There's so much to the story here of your background and what Link Squares is accomplishing. And when I think about Link Squares, it's, you know, one of the fastest growing tech companies out there, obviously in Boston, it's, it's growing incredibly, you know, leaps and bounds. And it's, you know, if you look across the whole tech landscape, it's one of those upper tier companies that is just growing at these aggressive growth rates. And to accomplish that, you obviously need to raise venture capital. And if I look at how you've raised capital, it's been consistent year after year for how many years now? Three, maybe more, three, four years. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. It's yeah. hard to remember sometimes. So the tricky thing is, you're scaling this high growth business, which is a lot, but to raise that next round of capital continuously, I mean, you just recently announced your $100 million Series C. There was the Series B of $40 million, the Series A of $14 million, and it was at, you know, continuously like raise capital, grow, raise capital, which these are what entrepreneurs look for, these, you know, great success stories where you can raise that growth round to climb that next mountain. But when I think about it, it's like, okay, how do you balance that between building a business at the same time? Yeah, one of the realities is that uh, if you want to raise capital, you have to know that like raising money is not real life. Uh, it's not running a business. It's an element that enables the business to, to uh, have different outcomes and the speed in which you work and the, the ability for you to go further and faster. But Raising capital really isn't real life. It's just something you have to do, right? It's kind of like a, a commodity. I, I think of raising capital a lot like buying bottled water, right? You need body, your body needs water to survive, right? Mm -hmm. And then you're picking between different brands of water really as kind of venture capital money, right? Um, it's all just water, right? Now there's more water plus marketing, right? And, and when I think about, you know, how we've done it, uh, I have a, a couple of like real penance of, of pillars of how I, I go and I raise capital. The first thing is, is picking the right people, right? There's so much to be said about a relationship with a venture capitalist who become your board director. If you're the CEO or the founder or the founders are on the board, like this person becomes more of like your peer, but because of the structure, 
they are kind of above you on 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 decision making in some areas, depending on how you negotiate your documents with them. And so that means choosing better people over money uh, valuation always. I've always tried to choose better people given choices to just raise at higher prices because you're going to be in a relationship with someone that is harder to unfurl than a marriage. Uh, it's way harder. Uh, yeah. It's something that you're really kind of stuck with for a long time. And you're also working hand in hand with someone. Um, the best kind of strategy is to not do 30 day fiance and immediately get, you know, <laughs> hitched, right. And, and some of that strategy also means as CEO being very proactive about just meeting lots of investors and keeping up with them every kind of six months or every year, making and holding yourself accountable to building a relationship, getting to know someone, right. Take 30 minutes, uh, talk to 20 VCs uh, every six months, take 20 minutes and, then there's that moment of inflection where you've decided that now's the right time to raise capital. Those are the best moments to kind of engage with people. You also kind of get a vibe into like who they are. Like so much of my relationship, I think I have with my investors, which is like very special is that we also know each other as people. Like I know, I know that my seed lead investor from hyperplane, John Murphy is a, is a guitar player and I play guitar too. And that's like a, a part of his life and, and, you know, where they are with kids and, and how they kind of think of the world and their perspective and how they grew up. And you're really building like a very tight relationship. It's not just the, you provide us capital and I go and I use it to, to fund the operations of the business. It's more like we're partnering up now. Like you're almost adding another co-founder into the company, like another kind of dynamic, another viewpoint opinion. So choosing better people, um, I mean, the second thing is just getting tight on unit economics, right? And learning how businesses are evaluated also learning the venture capital kind of um, model, right? It's a business model, right? It's how they make money, borrowing money from limited partners like endowments, trusts, high net worth individuals, people that have a lot of cash on hand, like higher education, insurance companies, but then you also have to understand how they, they operate and how their decision-making is going to flow down into you, right? They have a business to run also, right? They've raised the, you know, millions of dollars, some of them billions of dollars. They've promised, I don't know, four, five, six, seven dollars back for every dollar that they took from someone. They invest that money into private companies. They own you know, portions of private companies and the companies continue to succeed. Then they make their returns, right? And so I think a lot of people don't understand the model and don't understand how it works. And so then that can lead to outcomes that are kind of unexpected as the kind of CEO. It's an unexpected outcome, but it's pretty much expected for like how venture capitalists need to actually exist because they have a business to run also. So that's another big thing. Um, so yeah, what do we cover? The people part is very important. The unit economics, like do you know every SaaS metric and the right benchmarks and boundaries and how to think about it? And if one benchmark is kind of out of out of place, do you have a good story as to why that is? You're doing something uh, strategically and intentionally and not as kind of like an unintended mistake, right? Um, and, and then it's understanding venture capital generally. And then from there, it's just like running a, a tight process, which is, getting your whole management team involved. And, and I fundraising is a team sport. It takes a lot of sacrifice. It takes, it's real hard to do. And um, it's we're fortunate that we've been able to succeed every time we needed to. There were plenty of moments where we were down to, I don't know, two, three, four payrolls. And it was like, well, this has to succeed now. Like it has to, like, you know, we have to go do this right now. Well, don't do fundraising with two payrolls left, but you know, right. you get down to diligence and you know, the work in the process and it's kind of late in the game. And, and it, it's an important kind of team building thing. It's kind of like you go off to war together and you go, you go fight this really hard, hard monster together in a dungeon and you come out with the, with the cash. And, and um, yeah, I would say also kind of evaluate venture capital is the right thing for you. Right. For us, we had a highly technical product. AI product uh, requires subject matter experts, which you, know, you can't bootstrap subject matter experts very easily, right? You're the type of kind of PhDs, data scientists, kind of software experts we needed. It required required 
capital and also the investment in actually building technology, which is processing and all that kind of, you know, cloud spend that we need infrastructure spend. So evaluate if it's the right path for you, right? It's a different thing. It's a different way of working. It will impose kind of different bounds and and kind of conditions and, and different ways of operating. So it's kind of like knowing the business, knowing it's right for you, and then trying to meet as many VCs as you can. Um, there's so many outlets now that that are even weren't available five or six years ago to just build a network of them and keep on, you get one VC and then you ask them, who do they know? And then you kind of keep growing your network and that's how you, you, you do these fundraisers. But at the end of the day, Keith, you know what? It's the spreadsheets. I always say this to our team. It's that, you know, we are what our income statement is. We are what our balance sheet is. We are what our PNL is. We are what our SAS metrics are. Right. And, I think now with the conditions in the macro market being what they are, uh, the emphasis on creating a real business that has some kind of tangible value, it can't just be a giant, you know, PowerPoint for Ghazi. Uh, maybe in the kind of early rounds, of course, you know, pre-seed and seed, you know, things are hypotheses and you're really using capital to get to your next hypothesis that okay, we're going to use this capital for two years and this is what we're going to be able to achieve and this is the next hypothesis that we can solve, whether it's at our scale, which is continue to, you know, more than double our revenue every year at this scale and keep going, you know, keep doubling the revenue every year and keep keep introducing great products for the buyer or in the early days, which is just like, this is the idea that people want, right? And so uh, at the end of the day, the business is... The software itself and the customers and the and the uh, NPS scores, that's what really matters. My opinion, fundraising is just something I think that got kind of out of control, blown out of control and out of proportions kind of in the last few years. But I mean, that's that's four kind of tangible things to take away. Yeah, no, definitely. That's good feedback because it's like you got to build your network of VCs. So when you do need to raise capital, they're already like know you and there's relationships intact. You got to know the inside and outs of your business because that's just fundamentals of these conversations. And it's a team sport where you got to include your leadership team to hopefully all work together to uh, secure that next round. So that all makes sense. All right, let's talk about your background story. So where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? I grew up in uh, Southern Rhode Island. Uh, near the University of Rhode Island. That's where I grew up in Kingston. Uh, I was, uh, I'm, I'm actually like quite like a large giant uh, guy, like, you know, six and a half feet tall. So uh, lots of sports as a kid, basketball, love, love playing basketball as a kid. And and um, and then like, uh, I don't know, I started playing music. So like I got deep into like playing music. Like, I don't know. I was a weird 12 year old. Like I love 1960s straight ahead jazz, like uh, Miles Davis, John Coltrane. And I started playing saxophone and learning just like how that whole thing works. Right. I, I have like a technical mind and that kind of led me to study engineering in undergrad. So I went to Northeastern university and studied computer engineering in my undergrad. And, and then I kind of always knew as a kid, like I wanted to be an engineer. Like it just felt right, you know, taking apart things and, building things, Legos and, and what are those, what are those things with the re- erector sets, right? The erector little set, erector yeah, I, I love that. Yep. So building model rockets, like um, learning how to program at an early age. Uh, and uh, some, a lot of this kind of influenced my dad's a, a electrical engineer, PhD, you know, he teaches at URI. So I kind of had that, you know, I don't know, you read Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, you know, there's, there's different things that elementally when you grow up, uh, that kind of influence who you are and the kind of the environment that was it for me. And so I kind of knew, like, I kind of knew I wanted to do something with computers and I liked it. And, you know, I was on AOL on the dial up early in life and <laughs> kind of exploring, exploring what the early internet was like on dial up and then kind of going from there. And so, um, yeah, I, I would say that I, I, I was always kind of like thinking of tinkering and building things, right? That was kind of me as a kid. And how about getting your career started? What did you do after the academics? Yes. So uh, a wonderful Northeastern co-op program got me some real life experience. And and so I went into building uh, electronics for the military. And so I had gotten into this awesome leadership development program for for engineers at BAE Systems in Nashua. And I was going to get a master's degree from WPI, kind of 
you know, through the program. And, and I thought this is a great kind of next move for me. And I had some experience working in the defense industry uh, through my co-ops. And, and I thought it was cool, like you know, working on radars and airplanes and, you know, stuff as a kid that I really enjoyed. Right. I really I, I was obsessed with becoming an astronaut as a kid. I think a lot of people I know, I actually asked that question to a lot of people, an astronaut always kind of seems to bubble up to the top of the list. I don't know why that is, or maybe that's just who we are. Um, yeah, and so I, I I took this job as a systems engineer at, uh, at BAU Systems, and that was a great run, right? I, I spent five, six years there. I really learned how to build and manage like technical projects, like we're building hardware, we're delivering software, we're creating schedules, we're working with subcontractors, we're doing presentations to the military, where it's kind of like being CEO is like all those things and a lot more, right? Thinking about costs and schedule and time and how we're gonna make this work and what's the technical solution. And so I had a really great upbringing and, and a lot of great mentors that I um, I picked up there in the defense industry. and then. I was just looking for change then afterwards. And so uh, if you may recall, like in 2012, after uh, Obama's uh, second election, uh, second re-election, he, uh, well, first re-election, he, he did a big cut to the defense industry, which kind of made sense, right? We weren't really at war. And so all the stuff I was working on got canceled. And so I was kind of like done with it. Like it was actually getting kind of to the point where like, I didn't want to live in New Hampshire either the rest of my life. And so I quit my job without a plan and kind of found back up a five through, through Boston startup school, which is a free program back then. Which I saw that I'm like, Oh my, what, what a great grad success story from the startup Institute, which was a great, I mean, they don't exist anymore, but that like spun out of Techstars Boston and was just an amazing program. It totally was. And so many of my early employees, that's how we used to find like folks for Link Squares, like Lyle, my first employee, he was a startup institute graduate. And Andrew, my now my SVP of product, and and he was a startup institute graduate. Lawrence with one of our, you know, first kind of implementation utility kind of QA. Swiss Army knives that found from there and a whole bunch of others too just kind of kept joining us. It was a great program to find people who were just kind of all in on taking a startup journey. Uh, yeah. I, I loved I loved doing it and got some got to learn about startups, right? I had been working in the defense industry. I couldn't tell you anything in 2012 about marketing, CRMs, leads, SaaS metrics. I never even heard of it, right? I was just like in my own little world. Felt like I'd changed my job at 28. I just changed my entire career at 28. So, yeah. And when I saw what you, the different roles and hats you wore back, back up, if I, that's the exact reason of why I, as a recruiter, would always say, you know, if you join a startup, you obviously want to make sure that there's a good vision, that there's good leadership, there's good investors. But how is it making you more marketable two to five years for your own career? And when I looked at what you did, the broad range of experience from product management, analytics, growth, and probably 10 other hats. I was like, wow, what a great experience. And, and back up if I was great company. I mean, it's still their products still exist today, I think, for for data, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, totally. That was the, you know, coming out of the defense industry experience, I knew kind of the technical side of like how to manage a project, right? Understanding how to work with other teams and build complicated technologies. And then the the backupify journey was really just learning how a business like a SaaS company operates, which the greatest learning I ever did, like like just learning at like a million miles an hour, just like, oh my God, I've seen, I know things I never knew before. And, and again, so much of the journey, I think my journey has been such a success is because I learned from a lot of masters, a lot of experts and all the journey, all the places I've worked. Selfishly, I wish I could have actually done maybe one more tour at a company and picked up more experts that I could have learned something from, like whatever sure. I wanted to learn, right? Like product management or demand generation or brand marketing or or um, sales efficiencies and different tactics and techniques and and and. But I I decided to go and and work on Linksquare's full time with my co-founder Chris, and so. But I always kind of attribute kind of getting the company off the ground is like a lot of experience that I I, I learned from 
seeing these great masters make all these big decisions and be like, oh, cool. Hey, that's that's how you do it. Yeah, it's a great story. And like, if anyone's ever interested in hearing an even deeper dive on Backupify, we did have their founder, Rob May, on the podcast. He's doing a new company, Dianthus Commerce, which is doing great too. But all right, so let's talk about Link Squares. So how did that idea come to fruition? Yeah, so I, as you had mentioned, I had a role like in operations inside Backupify, which basically meant I did lots of odd projects and data and integrations of our internal systems. And so uh, when Datto approached Backupify and it was kind of mutually agreed that Datto would acquire Backupify, the, the Datto kind of integration team who's going to be responsible for merging these companies together. They showed up in Cambridge and, and had lots of kind of different things they wanted to learn about the company, you know, software and, and technology and roadmap and all that stuff. Not all of it I was privy to, but the one thing I did and I was privy to was um, we were backing up all this great Google application data, right? Like Google Drive and Gmail for companies into AWS, right? To Amazon's web services and storing it all in AWS's cloud, right? That was the whole brand pitch of Backupify, cloud to cloud backup. And so uh, Datto didn't use AWS. They had their own data center. And, and for them, it's like, well, we have plenty of space in our data center for the data you're storing in AWS, which is like petabytes worth of data. It's like super expensive, right? Uh, you pay up for the luxury of AWS. And so they said to us like, well, which customer's data can we move off of AWS based on what their contract says? Without their permission, we can just do it because we have the right to do it. And that can start bringing down our pretty sizable AWS bill. And that's like a cost cutting thing for them. And then maybe they thought over time, they would get all of our customers off of AWS and being backed up into their regional cloud or whatever, wherever it was in, in kind of the mountain area, I think. And, and that was the ask, like which customers data can we move without their permission? And that was the moment where Chris, my co-founder who worked in like customer success there and I, because I sat, I don't know, right next to him, it just started kind of thinking and hearing and seeing that this is a massive problem because we had negotiated thousands of contracts. We had taken third-party paper, like working with big brands like our Whirlpool or Logitech or Financial Times, like you use their contract as a smaller company. You don't get to mm -hmm. use your own. And Right. Um, there's all these different variations and like, where are all the contracts? Like, oh, they're attached in Salesforce opportunities. There's like no process, right? It's in the Google Drive. It's in a box account. It's printed out in our controller's office in a filing cabinet. It's like, this is just like a, a kind of systemic issue that then we heard a million times thereafter. It's just, it's hard for companies to get organized in that way. Right. It's hard for them to know where every contract is and know what's inside them and know what they agreed to. And that was kind of the initial wheel started cranking. Now, we didn't have a general counsel at uh, Backupify mm -hmm. and we had a CFO. And so I actually didn't know that a general counsel was a role that existed because, again, my, my worldview of tech companies was like really small. Because I had worked in the defense industry before that. And then I had my first job in the B2B software world was Backupify. And so enough people kind of nudged us towards like, hey, you know what? At bigger companies, they have a general counsel. They're responsible for the contracts. And it's like, Chris, how many general counsels do you know? I asked my co-founder and he goes, I know none. And I was like, well, I know none also. Right. But I know because I've seen it, this outbound emailing thing is like super effective. I said, we should just write an email nurture and buy some emails of general counsels from like, I don't know, I think we bought it, bought it from a guy in Pakistan or something and mined them off LinkedIn. We gave them, we gave him like, okay, I want these titles and these company sizes and these industries. And like, how many leads can you get us? And he's like, I can get you 50,000. I was like, okay. And I was like, great, well, give us like 25 and we'll get started. And we just started cold emailing general counsels. We didn't know any. And I think the, the thing that really kind of got the company off the ground in the right way, which was like not being in a rush to build software, even though that's my like DNA, right? Like I'm mm -hmm. a computer engineer. I like building things. I'm a lifelong tinkerer. I, I love building things, right? And so just the resisting the urge to just build something 
too quickly and solve the wrong problem, right? And so we set out to talk to 100 general counsels and probably about 50, 60 conversations. And it was like, this thing is super real. Like people don't know what's inside any of their contracts and we could totally build a product here. And that's how we built the analyzed product that we have. So you spent, so you talked to those 100 general counsels and they were giving you consistent feedback of yes, contracts are a mess. We don't know anything as far as what the language is. And if we ever needed to, you know, figure out something, it's going to be a mess for us. Yeah. Yeah. Or like, I don't know, half the people were like, what are you talking about? Which is like typical, like you're early. <laughs> like, yeah. And then and then some portion were like, oh, I, I've experienced some pain. We just raised capital and doing the diligence for the VCs was like really hard. Or uh, we bought a company and we don't know what's inside any of the contracts of the company we just bought. And that's a hard exercise. Or there's all these kind of ad hoc ass- assignments and projects that show up on the legal team and we have no means of, doing them quickly because they're all kind of all the files are scanned to PDFs and you can't, you can't search them and they're kind of disorganized and it's hard to do. And so we kind of saw the makings of what the problems were and then saw the makings of how a software product could help those problems. Got it. So how'd you go about building it initially? Like, did you start writing code or like, like how did the product start to come together? Yeah. I, I didn't write the code, but I like I product managed it. So we we hired a, an offshore team. Uh, Chris and I both kind of put in put in some dough, and um, my dad gave us twenty five k, twenty five thousand dollars, and and that was great. And so we could we could fund a little of the software development. And those God, we were building so much stuff; those bills added up quickly, and um, kind of worked on it for like a year and a half, like synthesizing it through like clickable prototypes and then kind of working on the app and refining it and then starting to actually demonstrate what the product can do and kind of focus on the value creation of a sales process. And so by April, 2016, we had closed our first customer ever and was paying us 12,000 bucks. And it was like, whoa, this is awesome. How did we come up with the pricing? I don't know, it's $1,000 a month. You want to buy it? It sounds good, $1,000 a month. If they pay that, okay, cool. (laughs) (laughs) And then by the end of that year, we had like five customers. And so the kind of journey from one customer to two was like really long. Like it was like three, four, four months. Well, yeah, how did you get those additional customers? Was it word of mouth? Did you do more like outbound? Yeah, yeah, just like co- constantly keep on outbounding. And so our conversion rates were quite bad, right? Yeah. It's like we we would, I mean, we would talk to hundreds of people like, you know, to get a, a couple of, you know, a couple of great opportunities out. I mean, the statistics are pretty bad when you get started. And then we just kind of like work in a little pipeline and like having a couple deals and kind of learning about how to, how do people are even going to buy this, you know, things like security and negotiating the terms of service and, and then, yeah, by the end of the next year, we had like 25 customers. We just kept on going, kept on getting a little bit better every month, every quarter, hired a couple of folks. Like we hired Lyle, uh, be our kind of first BDR. And he was kind of set in appointments. And Chris and I had a little demo script going and and we we had a little sales process and got to ask the right questions and show a demo and just the same things we do like at a massive scale now we started with just like Chris and I just doing it Chris I and Lyle for a while well I'm sure the platform has evolved a lot since you started yet it doesn't sound like it's changed as far as the original vision as far as the problem you're solving right like maybe it's broadened as far as you can solve a broader problem but um so fast forward to to today like so what's the core of of link squares and how you're helping companies yeah, so it's contract lifecycle management. That's the category that we're in, the pre kind of pre-assigned Gartner category or whatever. That's the industry that we're in. Uh, and so contract lifecycle management kind of has three parts of it, right? Which is how we got started, where you store your contracts like a repository. Then we build the AI into that repository and get those insights kind of fully automated. And then and there's kind of working back. So that's where you store it. Then there's also the signing piece, which I think is kind of, I think about it like part of CLM is how you get a contract signed, right? And digital signature, electronic signatures, right? And then there's the kind of everything that happens before the document is to the point of signing, which is 
drafting or, or uh, from your own template or intaking third-party paper and collaborating, you know, like a sales rep co collaborating with the legal counsel inside the company just to work more effectively and faster together and also version all the different files and, and get it through an approval chain like, okay, well, this, you know, whatever your approvals are required, like, you know, this software that we're buying on the procurement side is, you know, more than $40,000. So like, have we run a security questionnaire to this vendor or, or what kind of whatever that, yes, I have, I've approved that they filled out the questionnaire or um, on a, on a customer side, like they want like a, um, a discount that's above kind of the threshold that we normally give. And why is that? And, you know, did someone approve that? Like getting it through an approval chain and then it's kind of ready for signature, right? And so now today we do all three parts of that, right? And one kind of one awesome software experience is all three kind of phases of a contract, which is how you get started to the point where then it's ready for signature, then how you sign it, electronic signature, and then where you store it, right? And so it's it's evolved it's evolved a lot it's been real fun to kind of keep keep building on it because like the i don't know when you first were you know meeting with skeptical venture capitalists but they were like well doesn't DocuSign already do this yeah all those questions isn't google gonna crush you i don't know where is google <laughs> is it gonna fall out of the sky like a handful like a cartoon it's google talks have you ever heard of yeah, it yeah <laughs> yeah um yeah, there, there's certainly it's certainly been an interesting journey for us because we entered into like a 25 year old market with something new. And there's a lot of skepticism about, well, this person is already so much further ahead than you or this person has raised a bajillion dollars. They're they're their own sovereign small nation. They could be their own island country like or whatever. Like, um, I think. I think that's kind of part of, to the first question you asked me, it's kind of part of the fundraising journey is to say that like, we can use capital to do something in an existing market that's actually a different play on it. So what was really interesting for us is that there are like 500, what we call pre-signature workflow contract technologies, right? But they didn't have the AI. So right. we started on the AI just to differentiate ourselves and say, like, this is actually a really incredibly intellectual property developed type of product that is actually super hard to do. And we developed it. And that's like a, a moat, right? It's like a technical right. moat that yeah. building your own AI and getting it to work is actually really, really hard in this case, right? NLP, natural language processing, you know, algorithms reading text, that's like an academic concept. But then to turn it into a product that can actually work and you got to think about gross margin and cost of goods sold and processing. And can this, can you process 10 times as amount of documents as we've been processing today? And what does that mean if we have to process 10 times the load every day, right? Like thinking about that is like, we figured out something really hard that is really, really hard, like a needle in a huge haystack. Right. And that was how we kind of differentiated ourselves from other people's offerings. It's like, well, they don't offer this AI thing. And in the early days, it's like, well, we're complementary to those 500 pre-signature products that are in the market today, right? That's how we got started. It's like, oh, you know, if you're already using something for the front end, the pre-signature workflow, you can still use Linksquares on the back end and where you store it because we got that thing nailed. Right. We got that thing nailed. And that's that's how we differentiate ourselves. And then eventually it's like, well, we should just build the front end product because that's not as hard as building your own AI. And then that kind of made sense. That was like uh, that was like our Series A raise. Like, hey, we're gonna build a pre-signature pre product too and take over the world. And and then you know the B was like uh, the Series B was like, well, we have both products in market and, and it's actually working. The co-sale of both of these products is working. And then the C raise was like, well, I think we can go kind of much bigger and sell a lot more products to the same buyer and right? not just contract software. Right. General counsel's office has so many different needs, right? So, well, it's obviously working because uh, Inc. just announced their Inc. Five Thousand list, and for your, I think it was your first time on this list. You entered at number two hundred and fifty-three out of five thousand, which is amazing, and number ten in Massachusetts, which I thought was uh, an amazing number as well. So, 
what are your long-term goals in terms of growing the company, you know, hiring plans? Like what's, what's, what's next? Yeah. Yeah. If you were to uh, ask me who's the number one company I'm most influenced by in how I think of the strategy of this company is definitely HubSpot. Mm-hmm. And, and there's so much, so much, I think that in the, our ecosystem that we can all stand up and give them a round of applause for doing something that is just incredible, which is building lots of products for the same buyer, right? Building 10 products for that kind of same core buyer and figuring out a way to sell like a platform of technologies, like a bundle. And I think that that is our vision, right? Of like a a single platform that, that the general counsel can buy everything that they need, not just contract software, not just signature software, anything they need to manage their outside counsels or their IP or uh, dealing with governance, risk and compliance or managing multiple entities. And I think that is such a playbook we see here locally, which is there's so much to be inspired about HubSpot's journey uh, that I want to do the same journey because you know what? It's how you kind of keep beating guidance, right? You're giving guidance eventually if you're a public company. It's like, how do you keep on performing every single quarter? You have more and more companies just adding different things and coming in and there's strength in the platform, right? As opposed to one piece part player. And you see that in a hundred different industries, right? You see it in folks like Datadog, right? They're selling 10 different products to the same CTO, VP of engineering, even though you can make a decision to buy 10 different products individually, right? Why would you do that? It's just, Datadog has everything I need. HubSpot has everything I need. Zendesk has everything I need, right? Everyone just kind of as the, the real companies that, I mean, forget about even unicorns. I mean, I think a, a unicorn thing is even less important than companies that have reached a billion of ARR, right? Like recurring. It's like, what is the what is the playbook for that? Which is just, sell 10, 20 products to the same buyer and let them add them, turn them on and off as they need, right? And that's how you do it. That, in my, my opinion, that's how you do it. And so that's kind of where we're headed. Um, we're continuing because we're, we're in such a great position having closed $100 million financing in April um, that we are rapidly investing across almost every single department in the company. And um, revenue, if, you, if, if you're a revenue person, and we, we have a great kind of Boston, local Boston scene and, and you know, great in-office kind of experience for people to kind of sell in a collaborative way and learn some great skills kind of hand in hand. We also found a lot of people are just getting fatigued, just in, especially in revenue roles, is being at home trying to sell at home 24 hours a day. And now you have like a team and you have in-person training and and you can learn a script faster if you're hearing someone say it 10 times a day right next to you or or even coaching you proactively in real time. So um, yeah, investing in everywhere. Uh, We also operate in 20 different states. So uh, we're we're kind of spread out uh, on the technical side with product management, UX and engineering kind of all over America. So so that kind of makes sense for our, our tech team to kind of be distributed. And that helps us kind of keep up with our hiring plans. Cause it, as we all know, it's, it's quite a talent crunch here locally and kind of everywhere. So um, there's flexibility for remote also. And, and just kind of generally my, my whole thing with the company now and, and what I really want is I want to be another thousand person employer, 2000 person employer that, was founded here in our great ecosystem and in our great city and and following the footsteps of these giants like Wayfair and like HubSpot that kind of did it here at home in, in the Boston area. And I, I hope I hope we will go public and make make a plan to go do that and kind of sustain on forever and Lynx Girls will live on forever and ever. Right. That that's what I want to do, right? And and have thousands and thousands of employees even outside of Massachusetts. And everywhere and open up internationally and just kind of keep keep providing this awesome promise that we made to a bunch of awesome legal teams that will continue to deliver kick-ass software and makes their life easier. How, how many employees do you have now? We're like just shy of 400. Like, yeah, okay. So you're on your way to that. I mean, you're scaling very aggressively. So 
how did you figure out how to scale the hiring piece, right? Like we've talked about your background. It's not like you worked early days at HubSpot and you, you were you know tied to Brian Halligan and you saw what they did and how to scale. Uh, Backupify was a great company, but it's not like you um, had this playbook where you kind of just brought it to link squares. You, I assume you had to figure a lot of this out or just, you know, mentors. And so how did you figure out how to scale hiring? Yeah. Scaling the hiring was really about me doing my job as CEO, hiring a great executive team. So like hire a great sales leader, hire a great marketing leader, hire a great product leader, hire a great technology leader. And then kind of, in the years after, hire a great CFO, hire a great chief legal officer, right? But in the earlier days, it was like, I hired a great technologist, my CTO, right, Eric. And Eric is one of the most talented engineers in the world, like expert, right? And we used the strategy that if I hired Eric, then people would want to work for him because he's a great mentor for someone to be an apprentice for or learn or, or work around him and, and learn what he knows. And, and that apprentice, you know, apprentice and expert model was kind of how I grew up. And so I said to myself, well, people are going to want to work at a company in like an individual specific role and work for a master, just like I worked with lots of masters. And so my job is to, is to work and hire a great expert, right? Hire a great expert and in every role I can so that it makes their hiring much easier because they're not taking a bet on their career with someone who's, I don't know, half-baked on, on their qualification of being an expert. And that strategy really worked well. And, and I think you, you hire a great VP of sales and maybe your most ambitious sellers will also want to become a VP of sales. So they'll want to orbit near a great VP of sales and learn how they think and how they decide things and how they create strategy and, and how they look at metrics and use data. And I think that's so true to how we are employing people. And they're also having a great time here, which is they're learning things that, that companies don't always teach. And I think that's something special. So what have been some of the biggest lessons learned while building long, like building link squares, like, like some of those things that, Man, if I could look back and <laughs> wow, that that was not good thinking or something I would have done differently. Uh, in the I'd say in the early days, kind of you know using we didn't use a fractional kind of controller or CFO in the earliest days, and you kind of learn about company administration like. It's hard. It's that's hard stuff, right? I, I think if I had to do the journey again, like, you know, I wouldn't be running payroll by myself, like, or trying to fumble my way through like setting up a new employee and like payroll, right? Like, I, mm -hmm. I wouldn't do that. I, I, I wouldn't try to kind of do our own, you know, income statement or 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 kind of create our own balance sheet or or things like that. Like, I want to you really want to spend time on what is the next most important critical thing. And luckily for the world at large and startups, there are so many account accounting and administrative and HR kind of experts, right? I would, I would say that was a kind of early lesson learned. And as soon as you're thinking about raising more than like a couple million bucks, like the fidelity of your financial modeling has to get like a lot, lot deeper. Right. And, and, the fidelity has to get much, 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 much higher, right? And so you can't fumble your way through like a series A raise on a model that you just kind of put together by yourself, unless you're like an FP&A expert, right? So don't do, don't do that. Hire an expert. It's worth every dollar, right? Especially going to go raise $8, 10000000 million. Like you have to get through the financials part of it, right? And so... um what are the good lessons learned? Uh, celebrating is is always the the right answer. Celebrate everything. Celebrate everything you can. Find a way to celebrate everything you can every day. And it sounds ridiculous for me to love say that, that but no, I love but, that. Um, I built this little uh, uh, web application that uh, a sales rep or a customer success rep can can send a broadcast Slack message out to the company 
about a new deal that closed. And then just watching everyone celebrate with this person in our Slack every single day, you know, and, and now at like massive scale, like, I don't know, we have a hundred people on our sales team. Like it can happen like 25 times a day. <laughs> and awesome. it's just like a giffy storm, like, and just all this great, like, great job and the sales rep will get in and like think hey this person helped me out on this deal and mm -hmm. i was in a pinch or so you know, this cool. this sales engineer came in and did this killer demo or dealt with a really hard buyer who was very skeptical or whatever it is and it's just that kind of gratitude for each other and, and like trying to celebrate everything we can um now we have a kind of a thing called link stars which is kind of anonymous anyone can kind of submit like an anonymous like like pat on the back to, you know, or like a, a hat tip to someone who is like embracing our company values, like being team first or being all in being customer driven or doing what you say. Right. And those, those are our four company values. You can kind of highlight someone like this person is all in. They stayed up all night because we had this bug in this release and they didn't give up. And, and, and like, I just love working with this person or, or, like this person has been mentoring me since the first day I got in this company. They're totally selfless. And and I read those things. It just like warms your heart, like to think about kind of the love that we've had. I mean, that's something that is kind of gone really well is like, there's a real love for each other inside the company, right? And love a love for winning, which is also built on the love for the people you work with and helping each other out, right? And so um finding a way to do that and do it in your company, even though it sounds kind of, I don't know, porny in some way, but it's so, so powerful that, that I, uh, I've seen the, the fruition of it. It's pretty wild. It's pretty amazing. I mean, I think that's such a great, great point of you got to celebrate the wins because everybody works so hard and it's so great for culture. And it's just, uh, so I think some companies lose sight of that because they're always trying to, when's the next deal or oh man we just sold that now we gotta go deliver on it or something like that so um absolutely uh now somebody shouldn't make a decision to join a company based on what i'm gonna say but i i just i, I gotta mention this like uh so when we did our cxo briefing like this is audio so people can't see the podcast studio behind me but you're like we need to get a sticker up on your corkboard and uh so i sent katie from your team my address and the swag box I got in return. So if you're an employee at, at Link Squares, uh, it definitely was, if not number one, it's in the top three because I do these swag videos of opening off right. you know, company swag. And I was just like, man, they got this nailed down. Like the Bose speaker, the uh, it was like a summer theme where it was like, I got like a nice um, uh, cup that, you know, you put your beer in it. It was like a 12 ounce or 16 ounce. Like it was a whole contraption and then i get like the cooler to you know and bring the beverages to the beach or something and then i got um the bose speaker that was super cool and it's all branded link squares i got you know a t-shirt uh nice thin hoodie so it was just like man this company's nailed the swag piece too so uh kudos to the team whoever is pulling together your swag because it was very uh impressive Keith, it's the swag is like a four or five years worth of research <laughs> like, like we've we've researched the swag at a deep level it was some of my early employees job roles like okay you have to figure out how we make socks like you you are now the new uh chief sock officer you have to figure out <laughs> how we make link square socks and get the colors right and get it right. to match correctly and yeah. even that hoodie like we looked at like 10 different hoodies we found a vendor and was like, can you just make a sample of like one of all of these? And it's like, this is too thick. Like no one's going to wear thick. this at home. It's like, like, oh, I can't wear this. It's like, it's oh, like... I'm, I'm clammy afterwards. Yeah. Like this is way too thick. Like it'll never yep. work. And then it's like, okay, we found a really thin hood that everyone loves. You can wear it whether it's summertime or whether it's wintertime. Like, no, yeah. it, it's, it's all in kind of fun, but it's all in kind of support of our awesome employees and, and yeah. Give, giving them giving them some great stuff to reward them for the amazing work that they're doing inside the company and make it possible, right? And swag is the least of it, right? There's so much, there's so much more, but but um, it is fun and the hats and the hats too. So. Yep, the hats. It was even a bottle opener. I'm like, man, they they have absolutely nailed this. So uh, outside of Link Squares, what do you like to do for fun? 
I have uh, I have two small children, uh, two daughters. So one's three and one's uh, almost a half half a year old. So um, they definitely keep me busy. But uh, I when I when I have pockets of free time, uh, I still have that musician in me, and and I play guitar. So I play both acoustic and electric, and working working on my uh, working on my blues playing for electric like. I love uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan and BB King and and music oh, like wow. that. So, so I uh, I get to play in my basement now, which is nice. So away from the kids when they're sleeping, um, and uh, yeah, do, do that. Spend. I love cooking. I'm a I'm a big uh, I'm a big fan of cooking and grilling. I try to grill uh, year round, uh, despite my best efforts. Sometimes it's harder than in, in the winter, but uh, I love cooking and uh, a big sports fan. Uh, big New England sports fan, Patriots being my favorite team. So, you know, watch watch a couple games uh, during the year. Try to go to one <laughs> every now and again. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's that's me. Yeah, that's me. Very very cool. Well, Michelle, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through, you know, all the great work that you're doing and the team is doing at Link Squares. Your background story and obviously all the great advice for others to follow too. Yeah, thanks, Keith. Really enjoyed being here today. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.